Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. Escalating tensions in the Middle East as multiple groups are vowing revenge after deadly attacks. Jeffrey Epstein related court documents and evidence unsealed with Prince Andrew and former President Bill Clinton back in the headlines. More on the first unredacted release. The government is yet again working to prevent a shutdown. We bring you what the Senate Majority Leader says about the progress of budget negotiations. Homeland Security's Alejandro Mayorkas says climate change contributes to immigration. Find out how Texas Governor Greg Abbott responds. Tears, singing and jubilation as prisoners in the Russia-Ukraine war get some good news just after the holidays. The death toll keeps climbing following Japan's powerful earthquake. What the government is trying to do given the current challenges. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. We open with some breaking news. There is an active shooter situation at a high school in Iowa. ABC reports at least one person is confirmed dead and several others injured. The first reports about a possible active shooter at Perry High School came around 7.40 a.m. local time. The school is about 25 miles northwest of Des Moines. Police cars could be seen parked outside the school, and the FBI is reportedly on scene as well. Today is the first day of school following the winter break. So far, no other information is available. Police are expected to provide updates later today. Tensions continue to escalate in the Middle East. The fallout of the war between Israel and Hamas is rocking the region. Iraq said earlier today that a U.S. airstrike hit a base of the popular mobilization front in Baghdad. That's an Iran-backed alliance of militias. Four fighters were killed, including a commander of the group. Iraq security forces were deployed in response. An unnamed U.S. official told Reuters the U.S. carried out the airstrike because the commander was responsible for recent attacks on U.S. troops in the region. The militia has threatened to retaliate. In neighboring Iran, the regime is vowing revenge after at least 84 people were killed in two explosions during a memorial event on Wednesday. Iran blamed Israel for the attacks, saying they will pay a heavy price. The U.S. and 12 allies issued what amounts to a final warning to the Houthi rebels. The nations told the Houthis to stop their attacks in the Red Sea or face potential targeted military action. The Biden administration said the U.S. will continue to maintain a significant force in the Middle East. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken is set to visit the Middle East today. It will include a stop in Israel amid diplomatic efforts by the U.S. on the Israel-Gaza conflict. That's according to a senior U.S. official who briefed reporters on condition of unanimity. The official further stated U.S. diplomatic envoy Amos Hochstein will also travel to Israel to work to soothe tensions between Israel and Hezbollah. No further details were provided. Meanwhile, President Biden spoke by phone to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in recent days. The administration wants to improve access to Gaza for humanitarian aid and secure the release of hostages held by the Hamas terrorist group. A policy advisor in the Department of Education's Office of Planning has resigned. 
Tariq Habash said he doesn't agree with the Biden administration's handling of the Israel-Hamas war in Gaza. Take a look at what he told CNN. He's the one on the ballot. He's the one who has the power with a phone call to, uh, to end this violence. And so I think if the president wants to ensure a second term, if he wants to ensure the support of millions of Americans um, who are part of his base who have supported him, you know, I think he needs to hear what the people are saying, and I hope he does. Abash, a Palestinian-American, was appointed early in Biden's presidency for his expertise in student loans. Recently, 17 Biden campaign staffers wrote in an anonymous letter that Biden could lose voters over the war. The White House weighed in on the two deadly explosions in Iran yesterday. The blasts killed at least 100 people and wounded dozens more at a ceremony for an Iranian official killed by a U.S. drone in 2020. We have no indication at this time at all that Israel was involved in any way whatsoever. But we don't have any, um, we don't have any more detail in terms of how it happened or who would, might be responsible for it. Accused sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein is back in the news as hundreds of pages of unsealed documents from a lawsuit go public. This is the first set of documents to be unsealed under a December 18th court order, with more expected in the coming weeks. Just to be clear, being on the list does not indicate wrongdoing or lawbreaking. The list also includes alleged victims. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg reports. Prince Andrew, former President Bill Clinton, and previously unknown individuals are named in the records released Wednesday in a case involving Jelaine Maxwell, a close friend of late financer and sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. Prosecutors in New York indicted Maxwell on sex trafficking charges involving multiple victims. She was convicted in 2021. The list stems from a 2015 defamation lawsuit filed against Maxwell by Virginia Gouffray, who accused Maxwell of abuse. The first batch includes around 40 unsealed court filings, featuring sealed depositions, emails, and other evidence. Appearing in these court documents doesn't necessarily imply wrongdoing, as Epstein circulated within some high-powered circles. But Goofrey alleged in her deposition that Maxwell directed her to have sexual contact with people, including former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson, tech guru Marvin Minsky, French modeling scout Jean-Luc Brunel, and American investor Glenn Dubin. Prince Andrew was identified in the unsealed deposition of Johanna Schoberg, an already known alleged victim. Ms. Schoberg claimed during a deposition that Prince Andrew touched her breast while she was sitting in his lap for a photo. A court document filed by Goofrey's attorneys Tuesday says Andrew and Goofrey previously reached an out-of-court settlement in her sexual abuse lawsuit against him. Andrew has denied the allegations. The name of former President Bill Clinton, who is already known to be linked to Epstein, was featured in an email from Epstein to Maxwell in 2015. According to the unsealed filing, Epstein sent an email about Goofrey's lawsuit, suggesting offering a reward to Goofrey's friends and family that were willing to, quote, help prove her allegations are false. Clinton has not been accused of any crimes or wrongdoing related to Epstein. According to an unsealed filing, Goofrey tried to have Clinton deposed, but was denied by a federal judge. Goofrey made no accusations against Clinton, but her counsel considered him a key person who could disprove Maxwell's claims because of his close relationship with Maxwell and Epstein. Wednesday's court order states that more records will be disclosed on a rolling basis until completed. Court filings say 157 previously redacted names of those who knew and spent time with Epstein are expected to be disclosed. That includes alleged victims, prominent figures in the business and political worlds, employees, former associates, and journalists who investigated. The judge said a handful of names should remain redacted because they would identify people who were sexually abused. Goofrey's lawyer Sigurd McCauley reacted to the release, calling it a step further in the important goal of shutting down sex trafficking rings and holding more to account. But McCauley says there's still questions left unanswered about who enabled Epstein. 
She stated the public deserves to know how Epstein operated his vast global sex trafficking enterprise and got away with it for decades. Maxwell is currently serving a 20-year prison sentence for helping Epstein sexually abuse minor girls for at least a decade. She is appealing her conviction. More documents are expected in the next few days. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Former President Trump is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn the Colorado ruling disqualifying him from the state's 2024 primary ballot. Trump's attorneys argue the eligibility should be determined by Congress and not the states. Trump's lawyers also wrote that the Colorado State Supreme Court made an error when it ruled that an insurrection took place at the U.S. Capitol or that Trump engaged in it. Colorado's high court ruled Trump ineligible last month. That was due to an interpretation of the 14th Amendment's insurrection clause. The state's Republican Party filed its own appeal. The Colorado ruling is on hold while appeals play out. The state's primary is set for Super Tuesday on March 5th. If justices do take up the case and conclude Trump is ineligible for public office, then any votes cast for him wouldn't count. Republican candidates busy on the campaign trail. Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley will have back-to-back -back CNN town halls in Iowa tonight. The candidates will appear consecutively on the same stage before the same audience of likely Republican caucus goers at Grandview University in Des Moines, Iowa. DeSantis will take the floor at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Haley will follow at 10 p.m. CNN will moderate both town halls. Candidates will field questions from the moderators and from the audience. Former President Trump won't be campaigning today, but his son Eric Trump and GOP Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene will hold events on his behalf in Iowa. During another campaign event in Iowa on Wednesday, DeSantis responded to a voter asking why he hasn't more forcefully challenged Trump. Why haven't you gone directly at In my viewpoint, uh, you're going pretty soft on I've articulated all the differences time and time again on the campaign trail. What the media wants is, is they want Republican candidates to just kind of like smear him personally and kind of do that. That's just not how I roll. Coming up, a Texas showdown over illegal immigration. Do states have the power to arrest and deport offenders? The Biden administration says no. And a defendant attacks a Nevada judge in court during sentencing. We have the footage and the details of what happened. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Climate change is allegedly contributing to illegal immigration in the U.S. That's according to Homeland Security Chief Alejandro Mayorkas. He was on MSNBC yesterday laying out his theory. We have the effects of climate change, poverty, increasing level of authoritarianism, the very many challenges that are at the root cause of the displacement of people around the world. Texas Governor Greg Abbott responded to Mayorkas' statements a few hours later. He said, quote, the real reason illegal immigration records are being set is because B President Biden refuses to enforce immigration laws. We will send more buses and planes. We will continue building the razor wire walls that Biden wants to tear down. Texas and the federal government locking horns over illegal immigration. The Justice Department on Wednesday filed a lawsuit against Lone Star State over a law it enacted last month. 
NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on that and other updates from the southern border. The Texas immigration law known as Senate Bill 4 makes it a state crime to illegally enter or re-enter Texas from a foreign country. It gives state officials broad powers to arrest, prosecute, and deport those who do so. The Texas legislature passed the measure in November. Governor Greg Abbott signed it into law in December. The Texas governor reacted to the lawsuit on X, saying, Biden sued me today because I signed a law making it illegal for an illegal immigrant to enter or attempt to enter Texas directly from a foreign nation. I like my chances. Abbott also discussed the court case on Fox News. Texas is the only government in the United States of America that's stepping up trying to stop illegal immigration by building our own border wall. The Justice Department says the law is unconstitutional, calling it a violation of the Supremacy Clause, which says that federal laws usually supersede state laws. The strong waves of illegal immigration led to the closure of several border crossings last month. The government will now reopen four U.S.-Mexico border crossings on Thursday. Border authorities say that surge has receded somewhat and freed up personnel. But some caution that migrant crossings have historically dropped between Christmas and New Year's Day. The U.S. will resume operations at an international bridge in Eagle Pass, Texas, two crossings in Arizona, and another near San Diego, California. The House passed a sweeping immigration and border security bill last year known as H.R. 2 that was opposed by Democrats. But several senators say the bill won't pass the Senate. Republican Senator James Lankford on the bill. It's got a lot of great ideas and a lot of good pieces in it. I can get a Democratic Senate to be able to agree with that at all. My understanding is that H.R. 2 doesn't have Democratic votes in the House or in the Senate. But independent Senator Kirsten Sinema is more optimistic about passing a bipartisan border security bill. Sinema said on Wednesday that Senate negotiators were closing in on a deal which could couple southern border security with new emergency aid for Ukraine and Israel. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Budget negotiations continue as the government again works to prevent a shutdown. Here's Senate Leader Chuck Schumer speaking on the progress. As for the budget negotiations, we've made real good, good progress in that regard, and we're getting quite close. Uh, I'm hopeful that we can get a budget agreement soon, and I'm hopeful that we could avoid a shutdown. Congress is facing two shutdown deadlines, the first on January 19th and the other on February 2nd. That's due to temporary funding deals lawmakers struck before heading into Christmas recess. Schumer didn't give any details in the discussion between the Democrat-controlled Senate and the GOP-led House. Republicans are still looking to cut spending, which they say will positively impact federal debt. Meanwhile, the White House continues to advocate for financial aid for Ukraine, and National Security Council spokesman John Kirby dismissed reports that Russia was willing to negotiate. Uh, Russia continues to launch drone and uh, missile attacks, including ballistic missile attacks, uh, on uh, targets inside Ukraine to include not only military targets in Ukraine, but civilian targets in Ukraine to continue to try to weaponize winter, to go after their infrastructure. I mean, so for all the ballyhoo that I heard in the last few days about Mr. Putin and some press reports that he's all of a sudden willing to negotiate, he sure doesn't act like a guy who's willing to negotiate. He's Kirby says that's why it's important for Congress to pass the supplemental funding request put forward by President Biden. The package includes funding for Ukraine, Israel, America's southern border, and more. 
According to Kirby, the package is currently the only solution to tackle multiple issues at the same time. However, Republicans have repeatedly said Ukraine and Israel funding should be handled separately. And as global tensions continue into the start of the year, we take a step back to assess the economic outlook of the U.S. in a rapidly changing world. Earlier, we spoke with Thomas Hogan, senior research faculty at the American Institute for Economic Research and a former chief economist with the U.S. Senate Banking Committee. Thomas Hogan, some economists are predicting a prosperous year ahead and others are less optimistic. What's your prediction and why? Yeah, thanks. I, I, uh, I'm cautiously optimistic. You know, I, I think last year at this time, most economists were expecting a recession in the United States. Um, and I was actually not as pessimistic. And now a lot of them are more positive and I'm not quite as positive. So, you know, I see we've had a pretty good year and most people are predicting um, continued positive growth. There are a lot of signs in the economy that look great right now, but some that look not so great. So inflation is finally coming down, uh, but it has been a little bit more persistent than the Federal Reserve is expected. And so they may feel like they need to keep interest rates high for a while. Um, but that could be a problem because if things do start to turn down, then they might be able to cut fast enough to head off a recession. So I'm a little bit worried that the Fed might unintentionally create a recession by keeping interest rates too high when we're starting to see some negative signs in the jobs market in the broader economy. Yeah, what, what are you predicting for the jobs market and how, how might these uh, potentials impact the jobs market? Right. So, you know, it's funny because there are things in the jobs market that look great and other things that are, in my opinion, not so great. So a lot of people are focused on the unemployment rate, which remains very low, you know, for we're at maybe 3.7 or 3.8 percent. And just a few months ago, we we're at 3.5%, which is one of the lowest rates since World War II. So it's incredibly good, you know, still very close to a historic low. And yet there are certain things that look not so good. Uh, consumer um, expectations for the next year are kind of down. People are a little worried about the economy. And one number on jobs in particular is that the quits rate is very low, which some economists are saying it's great people don't want to leave their jobs. But if they think there might be a recession coming on, then they're afraid to quit their jobs, which is really a negative sign. And so I, I, my outlook is not quite as good. I'm not predicting a recession, but I think it's a lot more likely than some economists are guessing. Okay, and looking across the globe, there are plenty of geopolitical tensions in various regions across the world. How do you think, um, you know, incidents like the, the tensions and attacks within the Red Sea might impact the U.S. economy and, and the global economy in the future year, in the coming year? Right, I, I, you know, I think this could be a, a big problem for the global economy. I mean, d depending on how bad this gets, we, we've seen some container ships interrupted. And, and so a lot of the shipping companies have slowed their shipping through the Suez Canal. But that's really more of a problem uh, in the short run and more of a problem for Europe than for the United States. So, you know, we've seen just a little bit of increase in the price of oil. Um, it's been up a few dollars from, say, 72 to 74. Um, but just back in September, it was 90. And then after the uh, war in, with Israel and Palestine, it went up, but just very briefly and then continued to come down. And so it's, you know, it's relatively low compared to what it's been in the last few years. Uh, and the U.S. just doesn't have as much exposure to the Suez Canal as Europe does. You know, we get a lot of our shipping from, from China and from other parts of the world, whereas Europe is getting a lot of, of the uh, supplies from Asia through the Suez Canal. And so that's bad for them, both in terms of uh, the products that they need to build other products, uh, you know, that it'll affect their businesses and also affect the consumer items that they get from Asia, but also energy, you know, during the uh, Russia, Russia's war with Ukraine, Europe didn't have access to Russian oil. 
And so uh, even more limited supply of oil will be bad for them, but you know, mm. not as bad of an effect in the United States. Thomas Hogan, great to speak with you. An attack on a Nevada judge caught on camera. It happened yesterday morning in a Las Vegas courtroom. We want to warn you, the following video contains scenes that may disturb some viewers. I just can't with that history. In accordance with the laws of state of Nevada, this court... The defendant was being sentenced for aggravated battery with substantial body, bodily harm. He entered a guilty plea during the hearing. After Judge Mary Kay Holthus denied bail due to his criminal history, the man leaped over the judge's bench. The judge sustained some injuries and her condition is being monitored. A marshal involved in the incident was hospitalized after the attack. The defendant will be back in court today to face three new felony charges stemming from the incident. Coming up, the lowest temperatures in more than seven decades are battering the Russian capital. But residents in Moscow seem unfazed by the frigid cold. Hear what they have to say. An American and South Korean troops finish joint military exercises. Tensions on the Korean peninsula remain high. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. What will Gaza look like after the Israel-Hamas war ends? President Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu have differing visions for the enclave's hotly debated future. Here to discuss is professor at George Mason University Scalia Law School, Eugene Kantorovich. Thank you for joining us, Eugene. Outline what President Biden is calling for after this war is over. So Biden has issued uh, what's called the four no's. He said that um, after the war, there can be no occupation of Gaza by Israeli troops, unlike uh, U.S. presence in Afghanistan, Iraq, Germany, after American wars there. There can be no diminution of uh, territory, uh, unlike what happened to, uh, to uh, Nazi Germany, um, and, uh, and similar conditions. But there's another implicit condition, which I wrote about in yesterday's Wall Street Journal, uh, the Gaza that Biden envisions will be completely free of Jews. As we know, the Hamas government uh, hates Jews and does not tolerate them living there. And that is going to be something that does not change. And indeed, President Biden seems to envision a future uh, Gaza that will be Judenrein, just as Gaza has been since 2005. Now, that is not something that we should take as axiomatic or obvious, right? You might think, well, how could Jews live in Gaza? You know, they, Hamas just invaded Israel and killed thousand, uh, over a thousand people. Hamas is determined to kill all the Jews in the world. But of course, what Israeli victory should mean is a complete defeat of Hamas. And when Nazi Germany was defeated, Jews were back living in Berlin and Frankfurt from 1945 on. Why can't that be the case in Gaza? Yeah, and I was wondering as I was reading your article on this, why do you think President Biden failed to bring that up? Um, I think basically he takes as, uh, if not legitimate, then inescapable Palestinian rejectionism of having any Jews living there. And there's also a kind of double standard for the Palestinians. If Israel said, you know what, we want a state but with no Palestinians in it, 
that would be considered racist. But the Palestinian demand is treated as uh, legitimate because the administration is, I think, willing to uh, give in or overlook fundamental racism to uh, advance the two-state solution that it supports. And it so much wants a Palestinian state that it would even um, ignore the repugnance of the Palestinian insistence that that state have no Jews in it in order to facilitate such a state. Now, say Biden's vision for the end of this war, um, the, the, po the post-war era here um, comes true, it actually happens. What would that mean for peace in the Middle East? So I think if, if it's the case that it's not safe for Jews to live in Gaza, if it's the case that Jews you know, would be putting their lives in danger uh, to live in Gaza, then what that would mean is uh, it's probably not safe for Jews to live a kilometer away, you know, a mile away in Israel. So that would mean that, you know, in fact, the problem has not been solved and that conflict is going to continue uh, to exist. And instead of having a peaceful, uh, you know, century, as has been in uh, Western Europe since the defeat of Nazi Germany, we will indeed be seeing more and more attempts to massacre and expel Jews from the area because, in a sense, the United States is treating the demand for Jew-free zones as legitimate. Now, contrast Biden's vision for the post-war post era with Gaza uh, with that of Netanyahu's. So uh, the Israeli government has not spelled out their vision in great detail, which is understandable because they're in the middle of fighting uh, a war. But there are some things that I think are clearly agreed upon by all Israeli parties, which is that the, uh, there can be no armed force aside from Israel uh, in Gaza. Uh, there can no, be no, no militias, there can be no armies, there cannot be foreign peacekeepers, there cannot be Palestinian Authority uh peacekeepers and since the palestinian authority has also supported uh the october 7th massacres and suddenly there can be nothing like hamas so who does that leave to provide security in the uh region only the the idf and the idf is going to have to be uh, a presence of some sort um either bigger or smaller in gaza for the foreseeable future much like the allies were in germany for decades uh after World War II and the United States and Afghanistan. And we see from Afghanistan what happens when, uh, when Western troops leave. Uh, uh, America uh, and its allies were in Afghanistan for 20 years. They created a democratic government. Uh, and the moment those troops left, yeah. uh, Taliban took over. All right, Eugene Kantorovich, professor at George Mason University's Galea Law School. Thank you so much. Some Ukrainian and Russian prisoners of war gained their freedom yesterday. The warring countries conducted their first swap in nearly five months. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the exchange and the reactions of those released. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said Ukraine seizes every opportunity. We all remember Ukrainians held in Russian captivity. There was a long pause in the exchanges, but there was no pause in the negotiations regarding the exchanges. Zelensky said some of those freed were initially reported missing. Ukrainian authorities say 230 Ukrainian prisoners of war returned home in the swap. 224 soldiers and six civilians. Some had been held since 2022. 
For this soldier, the emotion was overwhelming. The former prisoners of war sang together as free men and chanted, Ukraine over everything and glory to the heroes. The head of Ukraine's military intelligence said the released prisoners include those from famous battles like Snake Island, Chernobyl and Mariupol, taken prisoner in the first days of the war. This exchange was being prepared for a long time. This former prisoner couldn't contain his jubilation. We're home. You did not forget about us. Russians also celebrated their return to see their loved ones. I'll be home in five hours, roughly speaking. That's going to be a joy. Thank you all very much, really. This Russian soldier didn't want to talk about how he was treated in captivity. The most important thing is that we are home, we have come back. Thanks to our state that helped us to return. 248 military personnel were handed over by Ukraine to Russia. Moscow said the process was a complex negotiation involving mediation by the United Arab Emirates. Ukraine also briefly acknowledged the UAE's role in the exchange without giving details. Despite the lack of any dialogue on how to end the 22-month war, Kyiv and Moscow have held many prisoner swaps since the early months of Russia's invasion in February 2022. But the rate of the exchanges dropped in 2023, and the last one took place in early August. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Residents in Moscow put on their warmest clothes today as the city saw its coldest temperature in 74 years. In some areas, the thermometers recorded chilling temperatures of minus 27 Celsius or about 17 below zero Fahrenheit. According to the Russian Weather Office, the temperatures are around 13 to 15 degrees colder than normal for this time of year. The extreme cold is expected to last in Moscow until January 7th, when Orthodox Christian Christmas is celebrated. Residents and visitors seemed undeterred by the frigid conditions. It's invigorating. The sun is shining. The weather is sweet. It brings joy to the soul. We are not afraid of this, but we didn't expect this. We thought it's going to be above zero weather, so you could walk longer. But thanks to Father Frost, he brought us a good winter weather. North of the Atlantic Circle lies what is considered one of Russia's toughest prisons, the Polar Wolf. It's also where Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny is being held. Take a look. This is what's known as Russia's Polar Wolf Prison and is the new home of jailed opposition politician Alexei Navalny. The complex is in the town of Harp, north of the Arctic Circle and about 1,200 miles northeast of Moscow. The colony is considered one of Russia's toughest prisons. Most of the prisoners here have been convicted of grave crimes. It was once part of the gulag system of forced Soviet labor camps, according to local media. Last month, after a 20-day journey, Navalny said he was in excellent spirits and glad he finally made it. I am your new Father Frost, he joked in an update posted on social media by his lawyers. Navalny's spokeswoman Kira Yarmish said last month she believed the idea is to make his life harder and put him further out of reach. They are just trying to make his life uh, as unbearable as it possibly can be. 
Supporters had lost touch with Navalny for more than two weeks while he was on the move, with Western politicians expressing concern. Navalny has denied all the charges he's been convicted of and says he's imprisoned because he's seen as a threat by Russia's political elite. The Kremlin has portrayed Navalny and his supporters as extremists, with links to the CIA intelligence agency. It says they want to destabilize the country. Navalny voluntarily returned to Russia from Germany in 2021, where he had been treated for what Western lab tests showed was an attempt to poison him with a nerve agent. The death toll from Japan's powerful New Year's Day earthquake has risen to at least 84. The government is stepping up rescue efforts. In order to provide this support, the number of self-defense personnel working in the earthquake zone will be increased from yesterday's figure of 2,000 to 4,600 individuals throughout the course of today. The crucial 72-hour survival window has already expired. According to the local government in the quake zone, 179 people are still unaccounted for. Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida said a large number of people are believed to still be trapped beneath rubble. The Prime Minister said rescue efforts in the quake zone are difficult due to the region's geography and ongoing aftershocks. Kishida also said that Japan has received offers of aid from around the world, but isn't currently in a position to accept them due to the preparation needed. Evacuees continue to wait for further aid amid freezing temperatures and heavy rain. Survivors say they face shortages of basic supplies, including water. And the U.S. Air Force has recovered the black box from the Osprey crash in November. The military plane went down off the coast of Japan during a routine training mission, and all eight crew members on board were killed. So far, the Air Force has not announced what caused the Osprey to crash. But according to a preliminary investigation from the Navy, a, quote, potential material failure caused the mishap. The box will be sent to labs for data retrieval and analysis, which could take several weeks. The investigation is ongoing. U.S. and South Korean troops concluded joint military exercises near the border with North Korea on Thursday. Combat drills were intended to test the alliance's combat readiness. Mechanized infantry and armored brigades trained for a week starting on December 29th. The Allies have dramatically increased the scale of joint exercises in the past year. The cooperation comes amid escalating tension on the Korean Peninsula. North Korea tests both long-range ballistic missiles and tactical weapons in the region. What a great opportunity to train infantry and armor together, rock and U.S. together. And this is the exact type of training that our soldiers hope for when we come here to Korea. Every single one of them will remember this day and talk about it for the rest of their lives. From sports to scandals, 2024 will mark some of history's most important events from around the world. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on what major decennial anniversaries this year has in store. The new year has arrived, and that means a slew of upcoming anniversaries. 90 years ago on January 1, 1934, Alcatraz Island in San Francisco Bay became a federal prison. Al Capone was among its most infamous inmates. 110 years ago on June 28, 1914, Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in Sarajevo. The killing set off a chain of events that spiraled into World War I. But the Great War wouldn't be the last worldwide conflict. 
On June 6th, 80 years ago, 156,000 Allied troops landed in Normandy. The largest amphibious invasion in history was ultimately able to breach Hitler's Atlantic Wall on France's north coast. By the end of the day, some 10,000 men had been killed, injured, or were missing. February 2024 marks a decade since Russia annexed Crimea and Ukraine. Less than 10 years later, Russia launched a full-scale invasion in February 2022. In sports, Muhammad Ali, known then as Cassius Clay, won the world heavyweight title 60 years ago in 1964, defeating the heavily favored Sonny Liston. Paris will host the Olympics this summer, 100 years after it last hosted the Games. The 1924 Games were the first to house athletes in an Olympic village. Johnny Weissmuller won three swimming gold medals. The future star of the Tarzan films also earned a bronze medal in water polo. Sixty years ago, Donald Campbell set the world water speed record on December 31, 1964. The daredevil reached an average speed of 276 miles per hour in his speedboat Bluebird in Western Australia. Campbell was the first person to break the world land and water speed records in the same year. He died trying to break his own record a few years later in England. Thirty years ago, Nelson Mandela became the first president of post-apartheid South Africa. After 27 years in prison, he became one of the world's most beloved statesmen in 1994. He died in December 2013. On August 9, 1974, U.S. President Richard Nixon resigned over Watergate. The scandal involved breaking into and bugging the Democratic National Committee headquarters. 110 years ago, the Panama Canal opened. The waterway revolutionized global sea traffic by replacing long voyages around South America's Cape Horn. An estimated 20,000 workers died during French control of the project, many due to tropical diseases such as malaria. 5,600 more perished during U.S. construction. In September 2014, protesters in Hong Kong demonstrated for 79 days, but failed to win any concessions. The movement inspired a new generation of political activists. But China has cracked down on free speech and political opposition in the former British colony. Twenty years ago, some 230,000 people in Southern Asia were killed by a tsunami on December 26, 2004. The world's most powerful earthquake in 40 years beneath the Indian Ocean triggered the catastrophe. Apple launched its first Apple Macintosh computer 40 years ago on January 24, 1984. The Mac had a graphical user interface and was also cheaper and faster. It also marked the beginning of the company's large advertising campaigns. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Up next, researchers create a new kind of semiconductor. The next era of smaller, more efficient electronic devices could be coming. A groundbreaking method for detecting breast cancer using fingerprints. How does it work? Scientists in the UK explain more shortly here on NTD News Today.
Thank you for staying with us. A new era of smaller, more efficient electronic devices may be here. Researchers have created the first functional semiconductor made from graphene. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the latest on the technological breakthrough. Nearly all modern electronics rely on silicon-based semiconductors. They conduct electricity under specific conditions, but they're reaching their limitations amid faster computing. Now a team of researchers has produced a semiconductor made from graphene. We got kind of lulled into thinking that silicon is the end-all of electronics. It's not. It's the beginning. In its natural form, graphene is not a semiconductor, but when grown on a silicon carbide wafer, it starts to show semiconducting properties and can be turned on and off. The good thing about graphene is not only can you make things smaller and faster and uh, with less heat dissipation, you're actually using properties of electrons that are not accessible in silicon. So this is really a paradigm shift. Graphene is also compatible with conventional microelectronic processing methods, potentially changing the future of the devices we use every day. But we know we're opening a door in a major paradigm shift in doing electronics. Graphene is the next step. Who knows what the step's going to be after that, but there's a good chance that graphene can take over and be the paradigm for the next 50 years. The team's measurements showed that their semiconductor has 10 times greater mobility than silicon, meaning the electrons move with very low resistance, which translates to faster computing. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And next, can sweat from a woman's fingertip help detect breast cancer? British scientists have developed a fingerprint test that offers a painless and non-invasive alternative to current mam mammograms. Professor Simona Francesa has been working in forensic science for almost 15 years, using fingerprints to help profile criminal suspects. But along the way, her research team realized that the same method could also be used to check for breast cancer. Sweat contains a lot of different molecules, but what we're interested in is proteins. What we do, in effect, is um, detecting those proteins and the different levels of expression of those proteins, the different patterns of expression, tell us whether a patient is, um, has a benign pathology or has early cancer or is metastatic. And we use artificial intelligence to make sense of those mass spectrometry data. In 2021, breast cancer overtook lung cancer as the most common form of the disease, accounting for nearly 12% of new cases every year worldwide. That's according to the World Health Organization. Traditional methods of screening and detection, such as mammograms or biopsies, are effective, but can expose individuals to radiation and cause discomfort. Francesca believes a non-invasive fingerprint test could someday replace the mammogram, and encourage more people to have regular screenings. Of course, in saying that, this is what we have at the moment, so I absolutely would encourage women to take those tests because they're still saving lives. You know what's on UNESCO's intangible cultural heritage list? A sauce. Harissa earned the honor in 2022. The hot chili paste is a crucial part of traditional Tunisian cuisine. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the spice. Firdos Ben Ali protects a decades-old harissa-making tradition. The spicy chili paste is a source of pride for her family of farmers. The technique is passed from generation to generation. I learned how to make harissa from my mother, and she learned it from her mother. It's a family tradition. We are a family of farmers. We grow peppers and make harissa. 
Traditionally, the dried red peppers were ground manually between two stones. Today, a simple hand-operated grinder suffices. For traditional harissa, we dry the peppers, then clean them with water, and finally grind them to create the traditional harissa. We also have another type of harissa, where we clean the peppers and then steam them to make steamed harissa. Tunisia's pepper season starts in April and includes different varieties. They're dried during summer and remain available in markets year-round. I am now teaching it to my children so that I won't disappear, because we can't live without harissa. The hot product is sold all over the North African country. Ben Ali hopes to grow her business. My ambition is to create my own harissa, to travel around Tunisia to sell it. And hopefully, I can export it abroad so that people all over the world can taste Tunisian harissa. Tunisia hosts its annual harissa festival at the end of October. Women sell their canned harissa creations, and celebrated chefs cook dishes showcasing the hot pepper paste. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. An Oklahoma teen has accomplished something no human has ever done before, beating the original Tetris game. 13-year-old Willis Gibson shared the moment he reached the game's kill screen on YouTube on Tuesday. His score was 999999 when he reached level 157. However, the screen showed level 18 due to the code not being designed to reach so high. Gibson started playing Tetris competitively in 2021 and says he likes the game's simplicity. He finished third in the 2023 Classic Tetris World Championship, but Gibson says his goal is now to win it all. A Tetris-playing AI was able to reach level 236 in 2021 by manipulating the game parameters. If you have any news tips or feedback for our show, please feel free to reach out to us at news.today at ntd.com. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. Jeffrey Epstein, related court documents and evidence unsealed with Prince Andrew and former President Bill Clinton back in the headlines. More on the first unredacted release. Multiple people injured in a shooting at an Iowa high school. What we know about it so far. Republicans busy on the campaign trail with less than two weeks before the Iowa caucus. What are the plans for former President Trump, Ron DeSantis, and Nikki Haley today? Homeland Security's Alejandro Mayorkas says climate change contributes to immigration. Find out how Texas Governor Greg Abbott responds. The Biden administration provides over $160 million to a chip company. The funds are aimed at reviving domestic semiconductor manufacturing. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. We open with some breaking news. There was a shooting at a high school in Iowa this morning. ABC reports at least one person is confirmed dead and several others injured. First reports about an active shooter at Perry High School came around 7.40 a.m. local time before school started. Today is the first day of school following the winter break. The school is about 25 miles northwest of Des Moines. 
Law enforcement said there were multiple gunshot victims, but it's unclear how many exactly. Police said that fortunately there were very few students or faculty in the building when the shooting took place. Multiple law enforcement officials say the shooter is believed dead and may have been a student. Law enforcement will provide further updates this afternoon. There's no further threat to the community. An accused sex trafficker, Jeffrey Epstein, is back in the news as hundreds of pages of unsealed documents from a lawsuit go public. This is the first set of documents to be unsealed under a December 18th court order, with more expected in the coming weeks. Just to be clear, being on the list does not indicate wrongdoing or lawbreaking. The list also includes alleged victims. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg reports. Prince Andrew, former President Bill Clinton, and previously unknown individuals are named in the records released Wednesday in a case involving Jelaine Maxwell, a close friend of late financer and sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. Prosecutors in New York indicted Maxwell on sex trafficking charges involving multiple victims. She was convicted in 2021. The list stems from a 2015 defamation lawsuit filed against Maxwell by Virginia Gouffray, who accused Maxwell of abuse. The first batch includes around 40 unsealed court filings, featuring sealed depositions, emails, and other evidence. Appearing in these court documents doesn't necessarily imply wrongdoing, as Epstein circulated within some high-powered circles. But Goofrey alleged in her deposition that Maxwell directed her to have sexual contact with people, including former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson, tech guru Marvin Minsky, French modeling scout Jean-Luc Brunel, and American investor Glenn Dubin. Prince Andrew was identified in the unsealed deposition of Johanna Schoberg, an already known alleged victim. Ms. Schoberg claimed during a deposition that Prince Andrew touched her breast while she was sitting in his lap for a photo. A court document filed by Goofrey's attorneys Tuesday says Andrew and Goofrey previously reached an out-of-court settlement in her sexual abuse lawsuit against him. Andrew has denied the allegations. The name of former President Bill Clinton, who is already known to be linked to Epstein, was featured in an email from Epstein to Maxwell in 2015. According to the unsealed filing, Epstein sent an email about Goofrey's lawsuit, suggesting offering a reward to Goofrey's friends and family that were willing to, quote, help prove her allegations are false. Clinton has not been accused of any crimes or wrongdoing related to Epstein. According to an unsealed filing, Goofrey tried to have Clinton deposed, but was denied by a federal judge. Goofrey made no accusations against Clinton, but her counsel considered him a key person who could disprove Maxwell's claims because of his close relationship with Maxwell and Epstein. Wednesday's court order states that more records will be disclosed on a rolling basis until completed. Court filings say 157 previously redacted names of those who knew and spent time with Epstein are expected to be disclosed. That includes alleged victims, prominent figures in the business and political worlds, employees, former associates, and journalists who investigated. The judge said a handful of names should remain redacted because they would identify people who were sexually abused. Goofrey's lawyer Sigurd McCauley reacted to the release, calling it a step further in the important goal of shutting down sex trafficking rings and holding more to account. But McCauley says there's still questions left unanswered about who enabled Epstein. She stated the public deserves to know how Epstein operated his vast, global sex trafficking enterprise and got away with it for decades. Maxwell is currently serving a 20-year prison sentence for helping Epstein sexually abuse minor girls for at least a decade. She is appealing her conviction. More documents are expected in the next few days. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Tensions continue to escalate in the Middle East. The fallout of the war between Israel and Hamas is rocking the region. A U.S. airstrike hit a base of the Iran-backed Popular Mobilization Front Militia in Baghdad, Iraq, earlier today. Four fighters were killed, including a commander of the group. Iraq security forces were deployed in response. An unnamed U.S. official told Reuters the U.S. carried out the airstrike because the commander was responsible for recent attacks on U.S. troops in the region. The militia has threatened to retaliate. 
In neighboring Iran, the regime is vowing revenge after at least 84 people were killed in two explosions during a memorial event on Wednesday. Iran blamed Israel for the attacks, saying they will pay a heavy price. The U.S. and 12 allies issued what amounts to a final warning to the Houthi rebels. The nations told the Houthis to stop their attacks in the Red Sea or face potential targeted military action. The Biden administration said the U.S. will continue to maintain a significant force in the Middle East. And as concerns rise over the potential for further expansion of the war in the Middle East, following those recent developments just mentioned, and the, the, as well as the recent death of Hamas deputy leader Saleh al-Aruri, who was killed in Beirut blast recently, we have with us now live to discuss the director of content at Israel's Defense and Security Forum, or Yisachar. Welcome. So to begin, what strategic implications might the death of Hamas's deputy leader have on the geopolitical landscape in the Middle East and especially Israel's security? Well, good evening. Uh, I think the, the idea here is that Israel really, um, well, while Israel didn't officially take responsibility for this targeted killing, I think that um, the idea here to strike the stronghold of Hezbollah, the heart of Beirut, the Dachia quarter, and eliminating the senior most uh, official in Hamas, while officially number two, he is the most uh, influential uh, figure in Hamas today. And I think this really illustrates Israel's determination to um, destroy Hamas, not only the Gaza Strip. Hamas, as you know, is also in Judea and Samaria and in, in, in Lebanon and around the world. And I think the more we do it, the more uh, Hamas realizes there, there's nowhere safe for them. I also think this is a strong message for Hezbollah and for Iran to know that people who perpetrate such attacks against Israel are never safe. And um, in this sense... Do you anticipate any change in tactics uh, from Hamas following this attack? Well, I got to tell you, the train has already left the station. We are already at war in Gaza. And the IDF pretty much controls the entirety of the Gaza Strip already. Um, the, it, with Lebanon, there is, has been going on some sort of an entrenchment war for three months now, over 700 attacks by Hezbollah. I, I can't imagine what else can happen as, uh, apart from an all-out war with Lebanon. So let's ask ourselves um, whether Nasrallah has a, an interest right now to sacrifice Lebanon for Saleh al I don't. I don't think so, to be honest. Um, we can't prophesize. We, I think we should always be, one of the lessons from October 7 is to always be prepared for such scenarios that we are surprised. But to be honest, I don't see Iran and Hezbollah sacrifice the entire apparatus that they built for decades um, for Saleh al -Aruri. I just think that they are preparing for a much bigger scenario than that. But Israel should keep an eye out for Lebanon in case some attacks intensify. And it should keep an eye out for Judea and Samaria. Because as you know, Aruri was the mastermind behind the Hamas attacks around Judea and Samaria, around Jerusalem, etc. So in that sense, Israel needs to keep an eye out there as well. And so what kind of policy shifts or actions do you think would be warranted in this situation in order to prepare? to prepare for any kind of response or ripple effects from, from this expanded war? Yeah, I think, first of all, Israel came much more prepared for this situation um, already. In Judea and Samaria, Israel arrested over 3,000 terrorists over the past three months, um, many of whom, I think over half of whom, are members of Hamas. Now, the IDF has already started arresting 
Hamas members who are not necessarily ticking time bombs, as opposed to the policy of the past where you only arrest on the basis of intelligence. So you already come more prepared to this moment with less members of Hamas in the territory, but there are already also you know, tens of thousands of, of uh, Hamas members out there or Hamas affiliates who are ticking time bombs themselves, potentially. Uh, in the Gaza Strip, I think the war is persisting regardless of the um, uh, elimination of Arlori. And I think in the Lebanon and Syrian front, the IDF uh, putting all these Iron Dome um, barricades and, and, and batteries um, to having tens of thousands of troops in, in, in ready um, on the border, I think uh, Israel is already in very high alert. Uh, and so given the situation, I think simply keeping an eye out and collecting intelligence, because I think already 100% readiness is what we're seeing right now. And finally, is, are there any kind of ripple effects beyond the Middle East that you would see from this event? Yes, absolutely. I think we saw uh, Iran try to um, revenge uh, past uh, eliminations by uh, committing terror attacks against Israelis and Jews abroad. And so if you heard the, the head of Mossad, David Barnea, just uh, uh, four months ago, uh, say that um, they, the Mossad has actually uh, thwarted 22 attempts to murder Israelis and Jews around the world in Cyprus, in Bulgaria, in Denmark, in the United States. And uh, these things cannot continue. And I think uh, revenging Salah al could potentially amount to attempts to attacks against Israelis and Jews worldwide, including on the in the United States, on U.S. soil. And in that sense, the intelligence apparatus has to be extra prepared uh, to, to, to be vigilant and to be ready for the option that Hamas or Iran-affiliated um, proxies, eventually they're all affiliated with Iran, um, would try to revenge. And for that, uh, absolutely, intelligence services have to be prepared. All right, thank you so much. Or Yisachar, Director of Content at Israel's Defense and Security Forum. Appreciate it. Former President Trump is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn the Colorado ruling disqualifying him from the state's 2024 primary ballot. Trump's attorneys argue eligibility should be determined by Congress and not by the states. Trump's lawyers also wrote that the Colorado State Supreme Court made an error when it ruled that an insurrection took place at the U.S. Capitol or that Trump engaged in it. Colorado's high court ruled Trump ineligible last month. That was due to an interpretation of the 14th Amendment's insurrection clause. The state's Republican Party filed its own appeal. The Colorado ruling is on hold while appeals play out. The state's primary is set for Super Tuesday on March 5th. If justices do take up the case and conclude Trump is ineligible for public office, then any votes cast for him wouldn't count. Republican candidates busy on the campaign trail. Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley will have back-to-back -back CNN town halls in Iowa tonight. The candidates will appear consecutively on the same stage before the same audience of likely Republican caucus goers at Grand View University in Des Moines, Iowa. DeSantis will take the floor at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Haley will follow at 10 p.m. Eastern Time. CNN will moderate both town halls. Candidates will field questions from the moderators and from the audience. Former President Trump won't be campaigning today, but his son Eric Trump and GOP Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene will hold events on his behalf in Iowa. During another campaign event in Iowa on Wednesday, DeSantis responded to a voter asking why he hasn't more forcefully challenged Trump. Why haven't you gone direct back? In my viewpoint, uh, you're going pretty soft. I've articulated all the differences time and time again on the campaign trail. What the media wants 
is is they want Republican candidates to just kind of like smear him personally and kind of do that. That's just not how I roll. Coming up, the government is yet again working to prevent a shutdown. We bring you what the Senate Majority Leader says about the progress of budget negotiations. And it could be lights out for the number two source of power in the U.S. We speak with a former Wall Street banker about the factors behind the battle over coal. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Climate change is allegedly contributing to illegal immigration in the U.S. That's according to Homeland Security Chief Alejandro Mayorkas. He was on MSNBC yesterday laying out his theory. We have the effects of climate change, poverty, increasing level of authoritarianism, the very many challenges that are at the root cause of the displacement of people around the world. Texas Governor Greg Abbott responded to Mayorkas' statements a few hours later. He said, quote, the real reason illegal immigration records are being set is because President Biden refuses to enforce immigration laws. We will send more buses and planes. We will continue building the razor wire walls that Biden wants to tear down. And budget negotiations continue as the government again works to prevent a shutdown. Here's Senate Leader Chuck Schumer speaking on the progress. As for the budget negotiations, we've made real good, good progress in that regard, and we're getting quite close. Uh, I'm hopeful that we can get a budget agreement soon, and I'm hopeful that we could avoid a shutdown. Congress is facing two shutdown deadlines, the first on January 19th and the other on February 2nd. That's due to temporary funding deals lawmakers struck before heading into the Christmas recess. Schumer didn't give any details on the discussion between the Democrat-controlled Senate and the GOP-led House. Republicans are still looking to cut spending, which they say will positively impact federal debt. Meanwhile, the White House continues to advocate for financial aid for Ukraine. And National Security Council spokesman John Kirby dismissed reports that Russia was willing to negotiate. Uh, Russia continues to launch drone and uh, missile attacks, including ballistic missile attacks, uh, on uh, targets inside Ukraine to include not only military targets in Ukraine, but civilian targets in Ukraine to continue to try to weaponize winter, to go after their infrastructure. I mean, so for all the ballyhoo that I heard in the last few days about Mr. Putin and some press reports that he's all of a sudden willing to negotiate, he sure doesn't act like a guy who's willing to negotiate. He's, he's doing everything. Kirby says... That's why it's important for Congress to pass the supplemental funding request put forward by President Biden. The package includes funding for Ukraine, Israel, America's southern border, and more. According to Kirby, the package is currently the only solution to tackle multiple issues at the same time. However, Republicans have repeatedly said Ukraine and Israel funding should be handled separately. Coal is being forced out of America's energy mix. This as China and India are ramping up coal production. I spoke with Epic Times reporter and former Wall Street banker Kevin Stockland about the factors behind the phase-out and what its impact on the U.S. electric grid is. Kevin Stockland, thank you for joining us. Good to have you back on the show. What are the public and private sector factors behind what you call the war on coal? 
Well, it's really coming from two directions. We have a very aggressive campaign coming out of the EPA. Uh, they're setting very tight emission standards. They have a number of other regulations that they're pushing to effectively get uh, the coal industry out of business. Uh, President Biden and uh, John Kerry as well have stated that it's their explicit goals to end coal in the United States. Um, at the same time, we have the whole ESG movement that is making coal, as they say, pretty much uninvestable. So to end any sort of uh, capital investments in coal production. And between these two efforts, we are seeing uh, coal pretty much end as an industry in the United States. And what's motivating the individuals and entities driving this trend here? Well, they've now uh, deemed under the Clean Air Act that carbon dioxide emissions are a pollutant. Uh, and the, re the reason for that is that it's all has to do with the, the climate change and the global warming narrative. So uh, coal has made tremendous strides over the past decades to comply with the Clean Air Act, reducing all sorts of pollutants. But now that they've determined that CO2 is a major pollutant because of global warming, um, that adds a whole new issue uh, for the coal industry that they probably will be unable to comply with. And what impact is the war on coal having on the U.S. grid? Well, the issue is that coal, uh, as, a, as an energy supply, it is extremely abundant in the U.S. Um, it's relatively cheap, and you can store it right next to the power plants. And so this basically allows um, them to ramp up and shut down the coal plants however they need to do to match supply and demand. Um, when you take those away, you are making the United States much more reliant on weather-dependent sources, i.e. wind and solar. Um, natural gas burns much cleaner than coal, but even then you have occasional pipeline issues, as we saw in Texas. It's just-in-time delivery of the energy source. So the big-picture issue is that when we eliminate coal as any option, um, any percentage of our power generation, um, we are making our grid much less reliable. Okay, and what does this mean given the push to transition things like cars, stoves, and home heating onto the electrical grid? Well, so as we are making our supply of electricity um, much more uh, unreliable, we are throwing so much more of our of our the things we depend on in our lives onto the grid. So as you said, we have uh, cars now. Our transportation system is supposed to be transferred to the grid. Home heating is supposed to be put on the grid. Electric stoves and more things. So we are ramping up demand for electricity at the very same time that we are really hampering our, our supply. And where is that going? I mean, when you say the supply is going down, the demand is going up, um, it just sounds like we're heading for a collision course of some, of some kind. Well, this is exactly what the NERC is saying. Now, the NERC is an organization that regulates the reliability of the North American electric grid. And they have just produced a new report. And they are saying that now uh, pretty much the entire central United States is at um, high risk of seeing power outages. Um, all of the Western states are at elevated risk. So they are, are essentially saying that uh, because of this mismatch of supply and demand, uh, electricity is going to become increasingly unreliable for Americans. All right, Kevin Stockland, thank you so much and Happy New Year. My pleasure, Chris. Thanks. The Biden administration is providing over $160 million to company microchip technology to revive domestic semiconductor manufacturing. The funding is intended to reduce U.S. dependence on foreign factories. The investments would be 
would enable the company to triple its domestic production. Much of the money would fund the making of microcontrollers. The military, automakers, household appliances, and medical devices use these chips. Government officials expect the funding to create 700 construction and manufacturing jobs over the next decade. In August 2022, President Biden signed the Chips and Science Act. The legislation provides over $52 billion for semiconductor development and manufacturing in the U.S. In December, the Commerce Department agreed to provide $35 million to aerospace company BAE Systems. Additional funding commitments are expected this year. And an attack on a Nevada judge caught on camera. It happened yesterday in Las Vegas courtroom. We want to warn you that the following video contains scenes that may disturb some viewers. I just can't with that history. In accordance with the laws of state of Nevada, this court. The defendant was being sentenced for aggravated battery with substantial bodily harm. He entered a guilty plea during the hearing. After Judge Mary Kay Holthus denied bail due to his criminal history, the man leaped over the judge's bench. The judge sustained some injuries and her condition is being monitored. A marshal involved in the incident was hospitalized after the attack. The defendant will be back in court today to face three new felony charges stemming from the incident. Scores of vendors were evicted from the Brooklyn Bridge on Wednesday. New rules prohibit selling goods on all New York City bridges. New York City Mayor Eric Adams cited dangerous scenes over the holidays. Footage showed a human traffic jam. Some pedestrians jumped from the walkway onto the bike lane several feet below. Despite the absence of vendors on Wednesday, pedestrians still found themselves stuck in foot traffic. I think it's better overall. And really, the city, if they can, they should try to designate someplace downtown if they can a plaza or whatever, a vendor's plaza, where they can all just stay there, you know, legally. I think it's become a staple of New York City now. People actually buy and sell on the Brooklyn Bridge. An elderly couple had the good fortune that an Amtrak detective and a New York State police trooper were driving by when disaster struck. The pair became trapped in a burning RV that was towing a Jeep near Catskill, New York. The off-duty detective saw the flames. He stopped and rushed to help, joined by a trooper who broke the RV's windows with a baton. The couple and their pets, including a cat, were safely pulled out. The Catskill Fire Company sent two engines to put out the fire. The elderly pair had minor injuries and smoke inhalation, but turned down further medical treatment. And a Colorado firefighter is being called a hero for saving a dog's life. And it was all caught on camera. The ice rescue happened yesterday in Colorado Springs after the dog fell in a frozen pond. Community members at the park quickly called 911. In the video, you can see the firefighter tied to a lifeline diving into the ice to save the dog. Once he got a hold of the canine, both were pulled back to safety. The dog appeared to be okay after having a very cold and scary afternoon. And a New Hampshire firefighter is facing five felony arson charges for setting multiple fires. Prosecutors say 19-year-old Nathan Nichols started the fires between May of 2022 and last September. Two of them involved structures. 
Some of the fires were in Bradford, where he serves on the local fire department. A judge released Nichols after his arrest last week. He's expected to be arraigned February 1st. Coming up, American and South Korean troops finish joint military exercises. Tensions on the, South, on the Korean peninsula remain high. And the lowest temperatures in more than seven decades are battering the Russian capital. But residents in Moscow seem unfazed by the frigid cold. We'll have the details soon when we return. Back to the news. The death toll from Japan's powerful New Year's Day earthquake has risen to at least 84. The government is stepping up rescue efforts. In order to provide this support, the number of self-defense personnel working in the earthquake zone will be increased from yesterday's figure of 2,000 to 4,600 individuals throughout the course of today. The crucial 72-hour survival window has already expired. According to the local government in the quake zone, 179 people are still unaccounted for. Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida said a large number of people are believed to still be trapped beneath rubble. The Prime Minister said rescue efforts in the quake zone are difficult due to the region's geography and ongoing aftershocks. Kishida also said that Japan has received offers of aid from around the world, but isn't currently in a position to accept them due to the preparation that's needed. Evacuees continue to wait for further aid amid freezing temperatures and heavy rain. Survivors say they face shortages of basic supplies, including water. And U.S. Air Force has recovered the black box from the Osprey crash in November. The military plane went down off the coast of Japan during a routine training mission, and all eight crew members on board were killed. So far, the Air Force has not announced what caused the Osprey to crash. But according to a preliminary investigation from the Navy, a, quote, potential material failure caused the mishap. The box will be sent to labs for data retrieval and analysis, which could take several weeks. The investigation is ongoing. U.S. and South Korean troops concluded joint military exercises near the border with North Korea on Thursday. Combat drills were intended to test the alliance's combat readiness. Mechanized infantry and armored brigades trained for a week starting on December 29th. The Allies have dramatically increased the scale of joint exercises in the past year. The cooperation comes amid escalating tensions on the Korean Peninsula. North Korea tests both long-range ballistic missiles and tactical weapons in the region. What a great opportunity to train infantry and armor together, rock and U.S. together. And this is the exact type of training that our soldiers hope for when we come here to Korea. Every single one of them will remember this day and talk about it for the rest of their lives. Some Ukrainian-Russian prisoners of war gained their freedom yesterday. The warring countries conducted their first swap in nearly five months. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the exchange and the reactions of those released. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said Ukraine seizes every opportunity. We all remember Ukrainians held in Russian captivity. There was a long pause in the exchanges, but there was no pause in the negotiations regarding the exchanges. Zelensky said some of those freed were initially reported missing. Ukrainian authorities say 230 Ukrainian prisoners of war returned home in the swap. 224 soldiers and six civilians. Some had been held since 2022. For this soldier, the emotion was overwhelming. 
The former prisoners of war sang together as free men and chanted Ukraine over everything and glory to the heroes. The head of Ukraine's military intelligence said the released prisoners include those from famous battles like Snake Island, Chernobyl and Mariupol, taken prisoner in the first days of the war. This exchange was being prepared for a long time. This former prisoner couldn't contain his jubilation. We're home. You did not forget about us. Russians also celebrated their return to see their loved ones. I'll be home in five hours, roughly speaking. That's going to be a joy. Thank you all very much, really. This Russian soldier didn't want to talk about how he was treated in captivity. The most important thing is that we are home, we have come back. Thanks to our state that helped us to return. 248 military personnel were handed over by Ukraine to Russia. Moscow said the process was a complex negotiation involving mediation by the United Arab Emirates. Ukraine also briefly acknowledged the UAE's role in the exchange without giving details. Despite the lack of any dialogue on how to end the 22-month war, Kyiv and Moscow have held many prisoner swaps since the early months of Russia's invasion in February 2022. But the rate of the exchanges dropped in 2023, and the last one took place in early August. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And residents in Moscow put on their warmest clothes today as the city saw its coldest temperature in 74 years. In some areas, thermometers recorded chilling temperatures of minus 27 Celsius or about 17 below zero Fahrenheit. According to the Russian Weather Office, the temperatures are around 13 to 15 degrees colder than normal for this time of the year. The extreme cold is expected to last in Moscow until January 7th when Orthodox Christian Christmas is celebrated. Residents and visitors seemed undeterred by the frigid conditions. It's invigorating. The sun is shining. The weather is sweet. It brings joy to the soul. We are not afraid of this, but we didn't expect this. We thought it's going to be above zero weather, so you could walk longer. But thanks to Father Frost, he brought us a good winter weather. North of the Arctic Circle lies what is considered one of Russia's toughest prisons, the Polar Wolf. It's also where Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny is being held. Take a look. This is what's known as Russia's Polar Wolf Prison and is the new home of jailed opposition politician Alexei Navalny. The complex is in the town of Harp, north of the Arctic Circle and about 1,200 miles northeast of Moscow. The colony is considered one of Russia's toughest prisons. Most of the prisoners here have been convicted of grave crimes. It was once part of the gulag system of forced Soviet labor camps, according to local media. Last month, after a 20-day journey, Navalny said he was in excellent spirits and glad he finally made it. I am your new Father Frost, he joked in an update posted on social media by his lawyers. Navalny's spokeswoman Kira Yarmish said last month she believed the idea is to make his life harder and put him further out of reach. They are just trying to make his life uh, as unbearable as it possibly can be. Supporters had lost touch with Navalny for more than two weeks while he was on the move, with Western politicians expressing concern. Navalny has denied all the charges he's been convicted of. 
and says he's imprisoned because he's seen as a threat by Russia's political elite. The Kremlin has portrayed Navalny and his supporters as extremists, with links to the CIA intelligence agency. It says they want to destabilize the country. Navalny voluntarily returned to Russia from Germany in 2021, where he had been treated for what Western lab tests showed was an attempt to poison him with a nerve agent. Coming up, a new state-of-the-art recycling facility opens in Sweden. The plant is the biggest of its kind. How it's able to sort materials and what its long-term goals are. And a massive cruise ship that can accommodate 10,000 people. Hear what people are saying about the largest passenger ship in the world and where it's headed. More shortly here on NTD News Today. From sports to scandals, 2024 will mark some of history's most important events around the world. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on what major decennial anniversaries this year has in store. The new year has arrived, and that means a slew of upcoming anniversaries. 90 years ago on January 1, 1934, Alcatraz Island in San Francisco Bay became a federal prison. Al Capone was among its most infamous inmates. 110 years ago, on June 28, 1914, Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in Sarajevo. The killing set off a chain of events that spiraled into World War I. But the Great War wouldn't be the last worldwide conflict. On June 6, 80 years ago, 156,000 Allied troops landed in Normandy. The largest amphibious invasion in history was ultimately able to breach Hitler's Atlantic Wall on France's north coast. By the end of the day, some 10,000 men had been killed, injured, or were missing. February 2024 marks a decade since Russia annexed Crimea and Ukraine. Less than 10 years later, Russia launched a full-scale invasion in February 2022. In sports, Muhammad Ali, known then as Cassius Clay, won the world heavyweight title 60 years ago in 1964, defeating the heavily favored Sonny Liston. Paris will host the Olympics this summer, 100 years after it last hosted the Games. The 1924 Games were the first to house athletes in an Olympic village. Johnny Weissmuller won three swimming gold medals. The future star of the Tarzan films also earned a bronze medal in water polo. Sixty years ago, Donald Campbell set the world water speed record on December 31, 1964. The daredevil reached an average speed of 276 miles per hour in his speedboat, Bluebird, in Western Australia. Campbell was the first person to break the world land and water speed records in the same year. He died trying to break his own record a few years later in England. Thirty years ago, Nelson Mandela became the first president of post-apartheid South Africa. After 27 years in prison, he became one of the world's most beloved statesmen in 1994. He died in December 2013. On August 9, 1974, U.S. President Richard Nixon resigned over Watergate. The scandal involved breaking into and bugging the Democratic National Committee headquarters. 110 years ago, the Panama Canal opened. 
the waterway revolutionized global sea traffic by replacing long voyages around South America's Cape Horn. An estimated 20,000 workers died during French control of the project, many due to tropical diseases such as malaria. 5,600 more perished during U.S. construction. In September 2014, protesters in Hong Kong demonstrated for 79 days, but failed to win any concessions. The movement inspired a new generation of political activists. But China has cracked down on free speech and political opposition in the former British colony. Twenty years ago, some 230,000 people in Southern Asia were killed by a tsunami on December 26, 2004. The world's most powerful earthquake in 40 years beneath the Indian Ocean triggered the catastrophe. Apple launched its first Apple Macintosh computer 40 years ago on January 24, 1984. The Mac had a graphical user interface and was also cheaper and faster. It also marked the beginning of the company's large advertising campaigns. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A new era of smaller, more efficient electronic devices may be here soon. Researchers have created the first functional semiconductor made from graphene. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the latest on this technological breakthrough. Nearly all modern electronics rely on silicon-based semiconductors. They conduct electricity under specific conditions, but they're reaching their limitations amid faster computing. Now a team of researchers has produced a semiconductor made from graphene. We got kind of lulled into thinking that silicon is the end-all of uh, electronics. It's not. It's the beginning. In its natural form, graphene is not a semiconductor. But when grown on a silicon carbide wafer, it starts to show semiconducting properties and can be turned on and off. The good thing about graphene is not only can you make things smaller and faster and uh, with less heat dissipation, you're actually using properties of electrons that are not accessible in silicon. So this is really a paradigm shift. Graphene is also compatible with conventional microelectronic processing methods, potentially changing the future of the devices we use every day. But we know we're opening a door in a major paradigm shift in doing electronics. Graphene is the next step. Who knows what the step's going to be after that, but there's a good chance that graphene can take over and be the paradigm for the next 50 years. The team's measurements showed that their semiconductor has 10 times greater mobility than silicon, meaning the electrons move with very low resistance, which translates to faster computing. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. An Oklahoma teen has accomplished something no human has ever done before, beating the original Tetris. 13-year-old Willis Gibson shared the moment he reached the game's kill screen on YouTube on Tuesday. His score was 999999 when he reached level 157. However, the screen showed level 18 due to the code not being designed to reach so high. Gibson started playing Tetris competitively in 2021 and says he likes the game's simplicity. He finished third in the 2023 Classic Tetris World Championship, but Gibson says his goal is now to win it all. A Tetris playing AI was able to reach level 236 in 2021 by manipulating the game parameters. And a new state-of-the-art plastic sorting facility has been launched in Sweden. The plant is the biggest of its kind and can handle nearly all the plastic waste from Swedish households. 
NTD's Andrew Thomas sifts through the details. These conveyor belts carry 40 tons of mixed plastic waste an hour. Chocolate wrappers, plastic bags, yogurt containers, and other trash travel across the 15-acre complex. They're broken down and sorted using infrared cameras. And this is what the end result looks like. Here we have each plastic type separately sorted. Here we have ketchup pack, uh, bottles. Here we have creme fraiche packaging. Here we have a lot of candy wrappers. The new Swedish plant is called Site Zero. The facility was built to receive 200,000 tons of plastic waste annually. The site can handle all 12 of the common plastics in the Swedish market. Today, not all the recycling is equal. Uh, you could, for instance, mix different plastics together and produce uh, simpler material like this one. This is a part of a park bench. I mean. Site Zero can accurately sort 95% of the plastic packaging it receives for recycling. Expected EU legislation will require new plastic packaging to contain at least 35% recycled material. This, after one recycling process, will go for in to incineration. And at the same time, all packaging that ends up in this needs to be replaced with virgin fossil material. On the shelves of a Stockholm supermarket, a grey detergent bottle stands out. It's made from 95% recycled plastics sorted at site zero. This uh, particular product is the flagship of the circularity that we are trying to achieve where our recycled packaging becomes a new packaging and it's only coming from Swedish households. According to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, global plastic waste is set to nearly triple by 2060. It predicts about half will end up in landfills and less than 20% will be recycled. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Those in Ponce, Puerto Rico got a sneak peek yesterday at what is touted as the world's largest cruise ship. The Royal Caribbean's Icon of the Seas was docked there in preparation for its inaugural journey from Miami on January 27th. The massive cruise drew curious gazes from locals and tourists alike, eager for a preview. Its presence at the port was expected to attract tourism and improve the local economy. After setting sail from Spain on December 23rd, the Icon of the Seas embarked on a nine-day transatlantic voyage to reach its current location. The ship is undergoing final inspections and preparations to ensure everything is ready for its debut. The nearly 1,200-foot ship has 20 decks with the capacity to accommodate up to 10,000 people. Well, as a Puerto Rican, I am proud that I have chosen the Port of Ponce and that it is Puerto Rico. Well, it seems to me that this is really something positive to attract, move tourism and the economy. We are at a time where we really need Puerto Rico to make itself known. And what's better, right, than to bring positive things to the island? 2023 had the lowest rate of flight cancellations in the last decade. The Transportation Department says travel at the end of the year was relatively smooth. The year closed out with just over 16 million flights and cancellation rate below 1.2%. Between December 17th and New Year's Day, the cancellation rate was less than 1%. During the same period in 2022, it was 8%. It's even more impressive because 2023 also broke records as the busiest year of travel. 
And that's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. We'll be back with more stories tomorrow.